0: Morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. Uh, glad that you're here on this chilly day. I think it's the coldest uh, morning that we've had so far this year and it felt wonderful, right? Yeah, I see that's a great thing to give thanks to God for that we survived. Um, you know, I could say stuff that's real bad, but I'm going to skip that for now. Um, I know we've got some new folks who are with us this morning, so if you are a guest, thanks for being here. Uh, if you are here for the very first time, we would love to Uh, Or if you've been here before and you haven't done this yet, we would love for you to text the word welcome to 833-276-5450. The reason that we ask you to do that is because we just want to be be able to connect with you. And so what you'll receive back from us when you text the word welcome, you'll receive a link to a digital connection card where we ask for some really simple information like your name, I think phone number, and maybe email address. And that may be it. Um, because we just want to follow up with you if you have questions about the church or if there are things that we can do for you to encourage your uh, faith uh, or pray with you or for you or anything like that. That's the reason that we do that. And again, for those of you that are here on a regular basis, that number may be the easiest and most direct way to get a hold of anyone on staff. Um, so make sure that you save that in your phone um, as a, 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 probably the best contact number for us. You was know, thinking about it earlier. Um, as we gather together this morning, I was trying to figure out how to describe it, and I don't, I don't know what else to say other than that we once again gather together with a heaviness that surrounds us. Um, you know, it could be for some, and I, I know this is true for some, that there are personal struggles that are happening in your lives. Just really heavy things that are taking place, but then also at the same time, there is a heaviness that exists on our planet today. Honestly, I I don't know how else to say it. Um, You know, senseless violence um, because of the brokenness that exists in our world. The book of Romans tells us that creation itself groans waiting for the day that all things are made right. And I just wonder if, based on what we have seen, and it's strange to me that we, we see all these images now. And so it's, I don't know, it's different than just hearing about something, but you're able to see atrocities take place. And um, I just wonder if this, if creation itself is not like, when is this going to end? And so before we get into the message this morning, I just want to pray. Um, gosh, I, I wish I knew what to pray for. Um, but I'm just going to pray that God would be at work. So you join me? Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm reminded of, of certain promises that you have given to us about things that you do, that you... bind the wounds of the hurting and you mend the brokenhearted. You set the captives free and, and, and God, as I think about those things today, I think about them in a way that's far more literal than maybe a lot of things that we experience. God, I pray for Israel today, for all the innocent families that are caught up in a conflict, for families who've lost loved ones. God, I, I, don't know, I, I guess I pray for peace, pray for justice. And while there is this, what is going to be this, I think, a, a somewhat of a, a global conflict taking place as other nations, including ours, try to figure out what to do and how to support an ally and things like that. Um, so that's taking place, but God, also at the same time, I, I, there is a lot that's taking place in the lives of families in our church, families dealing with health issues, loss, conflict. And so I, I think that there, there is for us a reminder of just how desperate we are um, in our need for you to be at work in our lives and around us in the world. And um, So I just pray to that end that the values of your kingdom would show up in the spaces where we work, where we live, where we go. I pray that you would extend grace and mercy and, and hope to all of us. Brothers, we spend a few minutes in your word. I I pray that you would encourage us today, um, that you would speak to our hearts through the work of your Holy Spirit, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. It's actually in 1905 that Leon Wilson wrote what has, I don't know, it's become a relatively famous phrase when he described... golf as being a great walk spoiled and those of you that are golfers or if you play have ever played golf you know exactly what he was talking about because you know when you play golf you're out in nature potentially in some of the most beautiful landscapes on the planet But even if you're at a municipal golf course, there's still something that should be pleasing about the environment that you're in, the the green grass, manicured greens, trees, ponds or lakes, whatever it is. I mean, it should be an enjoyable experience. But then golf gets in the way. And golf is an incredibly frustrating sport. You never seem to hit the ball where you want to. You can hit five shots in a row off to the right, slice it off to the right. And so the next shot, you think to yourself, I'm not going to do that this time. So I'm just going to play this slice because this seems to be the exact way that I'm hitting it every single time. And so you line up so that your slice is going to go in the middle of the fairway. And the very next shot, you duck hook it to the left and you think, what in, what in the world am I doing? Sometimes it seems like there are magnets that are located inside golf balls that attract them to water. I do not understand how that works. On the golf course, I've heard language that I have never heard anywhere else. I've seen mild-mannered people just get absolutely infuriated by what is happening, and then you realize that, yes, golf is a long walk spoiled. So for those of you that aren't golfers, you might be thinking to yourself, well, why do you do that? Why do you go back? Why do you put yourself through that kind of misery? And I'll tell you why. It's Because there is always one shot or maybe one hole, and it always draws you back. It's that one shot where you line up and you take your swing and you hit it and you say to yourself, as soon as you hit the ball, that's how it's supposed to feel. Maybe I can do that again. Or it's that one hole that... You find that you hit the ball the way it's supposed to be. You play the hole the way that it's supposed to be played. It looks like it is supposed to look. And how you imagine it in your mind and you think to yourself at the end of the day, maybe I can do that again. And so you go back. Maybe the next week or the next month or a few months later, depending on how often you play. And then the frustration shows up again. And golf is just a long walk spoiled. Life, I, I believe, was created to be an incredible journey. If you go back to creation with Adam and Eve, created in the Garden of Eden, which is paradise. Lush green grass, trees all over the place. And it's only... We can only begin to imagine what that existence was really like, but what we know is that very soon, sin entered the picture. And life can easily become, because of the presence of sin, a long walk spoiled. You hit it where you don't want to go. No matter how hard you try to avoid the hazard, you find that you are in the bunker over and again, and there may be times when you look up and you say to yourself, what just happened? How did I even get here? I know you've been there, because we all have. Work is utterly frustrating, and it's a slice off into the woods. Marriage just doesn't quite turn out the way that we had imagined that it would, and it's a shock off into the rough. Family life doesn't quite fit the fairy tale. It's a ball in the sand trap. And no matter how hard we try, we feel like this thing that was supposed to be this incredible journey is just a long walk spoiled. And Sometimes we feel like that's all there is. Today we are finishing our series, Walk Like a Christian. And what I want to do today is give us three life lessons for the long walk of life, so that hopefully we can avoid the hazards as much as possible so that at the end of our lives we look back and don't see a long walk spoiled, but we are able to see a glorious adventure. So if you do have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn to the passage that we're looking at today. It is Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21. Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, it'll be on the screen as I read it. Or uh, if you have the YouVersion Bible app on your phone, you can navigate your way to our live event and follow along there. Let me read this section for us. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15. Pay careful attention then to how you live. Not as unwise people, but as wise. Making the most of the time. Because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. I don't know if you noticed it. Uh, once again, as I read this passage, but if you were here with us the first week of this series, we started in chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians, and it said there, Walk worthy of the call. Or in the CSB, which I am reading from, it said, Live worthy of the call. So again, this morning, you may not have seen it because at the very beginning of this section of verse 15, the Apostle Paul writes, Pay careful attention then. In the CSB, it says how you live, but it's actually the word walk. Pay careful attention to how you walk. The way that we walk is really, really important. And so again, what I want to do is give us three principles for the long walk of life. The first principle is this: that we are to live in light of the gospel. Paul says, verse 15, pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making most of the time. And so, when Paul says that we are to live not as unwise people, but as wise people, I think what Paul is saying is that we are to understand the significance of the gospel and live in light of it. Now, for those of you that are here with us on a regular basis, you know that we try to make sure that our points come out of Scripture. You might be looking at that and say, Well, where did you get that from? Because I don't see it in those verses. And I would say, You're right, it's not there, but we find it earlier. Something you've got to realize about this book that we know as the book of Ephesians, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul. We've talked about that. It's a letter written to the church at Ephesus. And when the church received this letter, they would not do what we have done with the book. They wouldn't have taken it section by section over a long period of time, you know, breaking apart all the different sections and talking about them. What they would have done when they received a letter from the Apostle Paul is that somebody would have stood up in front of the congregation and read the letter in its entirety. And when they were finished reading, they would then read it again. And when they were finished, they would read it again. And then read it again and read it again to the point that they would only finish when basically a majority of the folks that were a part of the church had most of the letter memorized. And so we might forget what we talked about five months ago, but the people in Ephesus, when they received this letter, they would not have forgotten what they heard two minutes ago. It's in chapter 3 where Paul talks about the mystery of God, which is how Jews and Gentiles can be brought together together. In Christ, And so it's the Ephesian believers, they're the Gentiles, in a world where prior to the work of Jesus, there was a, a separation between insiders and outsiders. The Jews being the chosen people of God, they were the insiders, everybody else was on the outside. And so the first three chapters, Paul writes all that God has accomplished for us in Christ. And then he gets into chapter 3 and talks about this mystery. Jews and Gentiles equally coming together because of the work of Jesus. And he says in verse 10 of chapter 3, This mystery was revealed so that the wisdom of God would be made known. The wisdom of God is the truth of the gospel. It's how all people are rescued from our sin and restored in a relationship with God. So, to live wisely, as Paul says, is to live in light of the gospel. We actually read this in other places in scripture too, right? Jesus told the story of the wise and the foolish builder. The wise builder builds his house on the rock. And in the context of that story that Jesus told, he was talking about building our lives on the foundation of who he is And what he's accomplished for us. So we are to live in light of the gospel. Now the question is, what is the gospel? Gospel literally means good news. So it's the good news of Jesus. And I would say it this way. That the good news of Jesus is that when we could do nothing, Jesus accomplished everything. The truth of the gospel is the fact that because of sin, we're separated from God. It doesn't matter how hard we try. It doesn't matter what we do. There is nothing that we could ever do to earn a relationship with God. But when we could do nothing, Jesus accomplished everything. Through his death and resurrection, he is what allows us to be brought back into a relationship with God that should change everything about us and last forever. When we could do nothing, Jesus accomplished everything. That's the gospel. And when we understand the gospel and live in light of the gospel, There are incredible changes that take place in our lives. It makes a huge difference for us. The first difference is it helps us to understand that we should be living in dependence on the one who accomplished everything for us. Think about a message that we receive a lot in our culture today. Oftentimes we receive the message, if you work hard enough, you can accomplish anything. It's kind of Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 Hours. And I know this is really an a, a, uh, oversimplification of what he writes in his book, but he says basically, if you spend 10,000 hours doing anything, you can become an expert in that thing. And so because of this message is presented to us in culture, we have a tendency to become self-reliant, some of us worse than others. I'll put myself in the worst category. And so when there's a problem, we try to fix it. Some of us want to fix the problems that we face because we like the feeling of being able to fix the problem when it comes. But this is different because there's nothing that we could ever do to fix a relationship with God. It's different too because there there are times in our lives where we face problems that we cannot fix, but we must live in dependence on the one who accomplished everything for us. So then the question is, well, what does that mean? Because maybe there's a tendency for us to think, okay, I'm going to live in dependence on Christ, and so that means that I'm going to do nothing and just wait for God to do everything. And I don't think that that's exactly it either. It's not just, I'm going to sit back and just wait until God does something. But to live in dependence on God is a daily recognition of our need for the wisdom of God, to be able to do what God wants us to do, And it's seeking the work of God in our lives because if we are joining God in his work, that's the best place that we could ever be. So it's a daily prayer. God, I need wisdom to know what to do and then courage to do what is right to do. It's God, be at work in my life and help me to see how you are at work in my life because I want to join where you are because that's the best place that I could ever be. When we live in light of the gospel, we recognize our dependence on God to accomplish everything. second difference that living in light of the gospel makes is because everything is accomplished, we're able to live free from guilt. I do this uh, with people sometimes in in conversations with them. For those of you that have been through form, you've seen me do this. I think this is really interesting. So there is this, uh, like three circles that I draw on a piece of paper. In one circle, in the first circle, there is the letter W. On the third circle is, inside that, I put the letter C. In the center circle is C plus W. So the first circle is, or W, which stands for works. Third circle, C, Christ alone. Second circle, Christ plus works. And then I say, hey, what are you trusting in, in order to have a relationship with God? And so often, people point to that second circle. And they're saying, well, I know that Jesus did something, but at the same time, doesn't there have to be something that I must do as well? That somehow, yes, Jesus accomplished something for me, but my relationship with God at at some point, on some level, is based on what I do. And if that is the case, then we have every reason to be wrecked by guilt on a daily basis. Because what if I mess this up? Or what if I've already messed this up to the point that, regardless of what happens the rest of my life, it doesn't do any good? How do you ever know? But the truth of the gospel is that when I could do nothing, Jesus accomplished everything. It is not about me and what I did or what I will do. It's because of the work of Jesus. We are forgiven freely, fully, and forever, set free from guilt and given hope. Golf is a really interesting game. I could take out my eight iron, step up to a par three, hit a really bad shank. At the end of that hole, I could get a snowman. Now, for those of you that don't know what a snowman is, that's an eight, right? Shaped like a snowman. Getting a snowman on a par three is really, really bad. I mean, real bad. You don't want any snowman on your scorecard. But here's the great thing about golf. I can get a snowman on a par three, but then when I step up to that next hole, if I can separate it mentally, I get a fresh start. And maybe it's that hole that I hit that shot. And the ball goes where I want it to go, and all of a sudden, I walk off that next green with a birdie, which is one better than you're supposed to do. And all of a sudden, on that green, I feel way better than I did when I got that snowman. Now, the unfortunate part of golf is that at the end of the day, all of those scores have to get counted. But here's the good news with Jesus. You might get a snowman, but you are forgiven freely, fully, and forever. Wash clean. No more guilt, because that is in the past. I'm forgiven, freely, fully, and forever, and given hope. That's living in light of the gospel, embracing the hope that we have. The uh, third part of the, how this makes a difference in our lives is that we begin to understand that we need to seek reconciliation with other people because the gospel message that changes our lives is for all people. We talked about this before At the end of chapter 4. Be kind and compassionate, forgiving each other, even why, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Forgiven people forgive. To live in light of the gospel means that I am willing to forgive, and I seek reconciliation in relationships with other people. And the result of this? Evil days are redeemed for God. Pay careful attention then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making most of the time because the days are evil. So there's a sense in which this side of heaven that we could describe the time in which we live as evil days or the days of evil. That being because we will always have to struggle against sin and sin and wickedness are all around us. But when we live in light of the gospel, live in that freedom and forgiveness that God gives to us with our lives changed and we're seeking reconciliation with other people, there is a sense in which our days are then redeemed and no longer can they be characterized as evil days, but they are days dedicated for God. Lesson number one for the long walk of life, live in light of the gospel, second, Live a radically changed life. Verse 17 says, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. We get to the end of verse 17 and we say, yes, that is the question that I want the answer to. I just want to know what God's will for my life is. It's funny, with some of the verses that we're looking at today, some of the verses that we've looked at over the previous few weeks, They often showed up in my childhood, especially in my teenage years, this being one of them. So we get to this verse, verse 17, understand what the Lord's will is. And I say, yes, that's exactly what I want to know. And so as a teenager, all I'm thinking is the big questions of life. What does God want me to do? Which might lead to helping me to understand where God wants me to go to school. And then, of course, the third big question, who does God want me to marry? So we always think about these big questions of life. If if God would just tell me exactly what he wants me to do, I'll go do it. I hate to disappoint you. I cannot tell you exactly what God wants you to do. I'll just tell you, I'm pretty selfish. I would want to figure out what God wants me to do first before I ever tell you what he wants you to do. Here's what I've learned over the years, though. God's will for us is far more about who we become than what we do. It's who we are, not what we do. And so I'm going to tell you what God's will is for your life. Romans chapter 8. For those God foreknew, he predestined, those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he sanctified, and ultimately glorified. God's will for your life is to radically change everything about you in preparation for eternity. God's will for your life is to change you and lead you to glory. I love the way that Paul said it in Galatians 4.19 when he said, My dear children, I am working for you until Christ is formed in you. There's a sense in which you could look at our lives when we come to faith in Christ as this lump of clay. That God puts on the potter's wheel and begins to spin that wheel around and he places his hands on us. Forming us and shaping us, making us more like Jesus. And that changes everything. I used to do this sometimes when I would teach. I would say, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take out a piece of paper and write like the top three to five priorities in your life. The three to five things that are most important to you, I just want you to write those things down. So I give people time to do that. You know, obviously you're going to write things like, you know, maybe spouse first. Right? It's real important, especially when you're sitting next to your spouse. Uh, you want to you want to show them your paper. Um, you know, you might say uh, kids second, something like that. You know, friends may be on there somewhere. Work is maybe on there somewhere. And then at the end of that, I give people time to fill out that list. And I would say, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put Jesus at the top of that list. Because Jesus is supposed to be first in your life. I don't do that anymore, though. If I were to take time to do it, here's what I would tell you to do today. Turn your list sideways and write Jesus over the top of your list. Because that's what it means to live like Jesus. God wants to radically change our lives so that as we think about life, I think, okay, how does Jesus being in my life change the way that I relate to my spouse? What is Jesus in my life? How does that change the way that I parent my children? What difference does that make for me as I go to work every day? Because that's the work that God wants to do in us, is change us. Not just something about us or add to a list of priorities, but to change everything about us. And then lead us to glory. We have a tendency to be really short-sighted. And I understand why. Especially when you're young, 80 to 90 years if that's what God gives to us, seems like a really long time. The older that I get, the shorter that time becomes. And I know this, 80 to 90 years is nothing in comparison to eternity, forever. Something better is coming, and what we experience in this life is preparation for what is to come. God allows us to go through things sometimes that we don't understand, but God is at work in our lives, molding us and shaping us, preparing us for eternity. This is just the intro for what's to come. Lessons for the long walk of life. Live in light of the gospel. Live a radically changed life. And third, be controlled by nothing other than the Spirit of God. Verse 18, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Spirit. And this, again, this is one, especially as a teenager, this one showed up a lot in our teaching. And mainly, we just talked about the first half of that verse. It is a sin, we were a teetotaling church, it is a sin to even drink. The evils of alcohol, don't do it. We spent so much time talking about the first half of the verse, very little time, if at all, talking about the second. Here's the problem with that, though, the point is the second part of the verse. What Paul is saying is that alcohol, and it could be really any addiction, any addiction that controls us. But as followers of Jesus, that's not the way that we are to live. We are to be controlled by nothing other than the Spirit of God. We are to be filled with the Spirit of God. That's who controls our lives. Now, the question is, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? You walk into some churches and think it looks like A lot like somebody who is high on drugs, you know, where they no longer control their bodies, or maybe they're even slain in the Spirit and lay down. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. To be filled with the Spirit, understand this, to be filled with the Spirit, I believe, is not that I get more of the Spirit, but that the Spirit gets more of me. It's me surrendering myself. To do what God wants me to do. It's me saying, it is not about me, but I'm willing to surrender everything that I have back to God. It's not about what I want, but now it becomes about what God wants for me. Now, I want you to think about what you want. I'll give you the answer for myself. You know, I Because I'm asking the question, I kind of know what your expectations of me are, so I'm going to come up with something that sounds really noble, and I'm going to say, man, I want an end to gun violence. And then you're going to say, okay, come on. That's great, but what do you really want? And I might say something like, you know what? This is a little bit selfish, but maybe not completely selfish. I want to be healthy throughout my entire life. If I could avoid a major surgery or illness like, Man, that would be really, really good. And you're going to say, okay, I get that. That's a good one too, but what, what, do you, what do you really want? And I might say, you know what, man, I was in a parking lot the other day and I saw a Chevy Tahoe Z71 lifted up with some black wheels. Like, Man, like, I really want that. <laughs> and if you keep prodding me, what you're going to find is that what I really want for the world to revolve around me. And that's our problem. Because the work of the Spirit in us tells us it's not about you. And so I would submit that that is so hard, nearly impossible, we cannot do it alone. But thankfully, we have the work of the Spirit who is at work in us pointing out the things that we get wrong, and helping us to do what is right so that we live a life that is not about us. Let me show you the results of this. When we are filled with the Spirit, It says in verse 19, Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, making music with your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always to everything, for God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And so when I read those things, this is the results of living a spirit-filled life. You're going to say to yourself, man, that first part sounds really weird. second part I can work on. But then that submitting part, I'm not even sure I want to actually even do that at all. Now let me make... Try to make some sense out of what we read so that when we leave here this morning, we are not literally singing to one another because that would be weird. I'll just tell you. When the Spirit fills our lives, there is an outward result. There is an upward result and there is an inward result. Singing and making music in your heart and speaking to one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs We've talked about this. This is the way that we relate to one another. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago, that our words should not tear people down, but they should build people up. So maybe we don't have to literally sing to each other, but maybe the words that we use should cause the souls of people to sing. The outward result, the upward result. As we recognize that everything that we have is a gift given to us by God, there is a heart of gratitude that develops. That's the upward result. Then there's the inward result. The inward result is humility. Submit to one another. That submission is a willingness to place myself underneath someone to seek their good above my own. You know, I wish that I could stand here today and say, if you just follow these three things, you'll never hit a bad shot. I can't. You'll still find yourself in a bunker from time to time. We're off in the rough. But as you find yourself in those places, you are not alone. And it's my hope that as we walk like Christians throughout this long journey, we would not look back and see a long walk spoiled, but that we would see an incredible adventure that ushers us into eternity, where we're able to experience life the way that it was meant to be lived. Let's pray. Heavenly